currently, we don't know anything about violent, incarcerated political communities. We don't know anything about their recidivism rates. There currently are no studies or databases that, to the best of my knowledge, that exists in the Western world that will give us some direction as to what recidivism looks like amongst this unique community of offenders. Meet Omi Hodwitz, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Idaho. In the United States, if a person becomes incarcerated, it is likely that upon release, they will commit more crimes and return to prison. But what about terrorists? Are they equally likely to be unable to break the cycle of incarceration? Using a database, Omi is tracking terrorists after they serve time. Welcome everyone to The Vandal Theory. everyone, my name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout the third season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we're going to talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Omi and I discuss how terrorists caught since 9-11 are responding to their release from the U.S. prison system. Hi, Omi. Uh, thank you so much for calling into the podcast today. Can you introduce yourself real quick to everybody? Yeah. Um, hi, Lee. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Omi Hodwitz, and I am an assistant professor here at the University of Idaho in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminology. Um, I am a criminologist by trade, and I specialize in a few different things, uh, including theory, um, corrections, recidivism, and terrorism. All right. So one of the big ones we're going to talk about today, although we'll touch on some of the other topics, is recidivism. Can you first just define what that is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So essentially, recidivism refers to um, this phenomenon when individuals who have been processed by the criminal justice system, offenders, uh, as we like to call them, uh, engage in some kind of follow-up deviance uh, post-release. So they re-offend. Okay, so somebody who kind of went into the system, came out, and then didn't reacclimate as well as one would hope. Yeah, you got it. That's that's exactly it. So why is this so important to study? We're trying to make this better. Are are we doing bad? <laughs> well, we're not doing great. <laughs> I'll say that much. Any kind of crime, whether or not it's it's a first time offender or a multiple offender, somebody who's engaging in recidivism. Uh, can be quite costly uh, to society on uh, using a variety of different metrics. And anybody who's who's been the victim of a crime can certainly attest to that. I mean, it certainly um, it, it is a metric of an unhealthy kind of uh, dynamic in, in our social fabric. It can cost the taxpayer when it comes to corrections costs, prison costs, jail costs, and court costs, things of that sort. It can also really affect uh, the sense of security and safety of the general public. Um, and it's, it's also very un unpleasant and unfortunate for the individuals who find themselves on the wrong side of the law themselves. So, so just as we are motivated to study crime, we, we are just as motivated to study recidivism or reoffending. Um, since uh, recidivism and reoffending is such a large part of what we see in the United States, for example, the National Institute of Justice released a report recently um, back in 2018 that reported that within nine years, 
um, upwards of, of 80% of individuals had recidivated. 80%? That's nuts. Approximately, yes. So how did you end up studying recidivism? Well, I actually have an interesting um, <laughs> backstory. I, I was—I um, come from a line of offenders. My father was an offender, as was my uncle, and well, most most of the individuals in, in um, on one side of my family. And I also engaged in a diverse array of, of deviance when I was younger, and so um, I spent some time as as a, a resident. As, as you will, of the correctional system here in the United States, um, and also a bit of time in Canada as well. And it was actually while I was incarcerated down in Los Angeles County Jail that I started to really pay attention to the people that I was surrounded by, hearing their stories, um, hearing their, ba- their backgrounds, and what had brought them to the correctional system in the first place, uh, and how many times they had actually been residents, um, I, I prefer not to use the term inmates, but have been residents in the correctional system in the United States and what had brought them back there time and time and time again. It was while I was serving a sentence down in the, the jail down there that I actually applied to go back to school and get my undergraduate degree in criminology because I really wanted to explore more about uh, what I was seeing in front of me and, and what I was hearing from these women that I was incarcerated with. Wow. One of the things we wanted to talk about today was not just, uh, I don't know if I, I want to say regular crimes, or we wanted to actually talk about um, some work you've been doing in terrorism as well. What is your work concerning recidivism and terrorism? Sure. So when I, when I talk about uh, uh, terrorist offenders, words that might make it a little bit kind of simpler to discuss is I refer to them as political offenders. And then the more regular offenders that you were just referring to, I'll, I'll refer to them as apolitical offenders. Okay. So when I mentioned that I did actually spend some time in the correctional system in the United States and Canada, it was actually as, I mean, some of my stuff was a little bit more apolitical, but, but a lot of what I was doing that um, uh, landed me in the correctional system was political work, uh, extremism, activism. Looking at those who took it further than I was willing to take it, actually looking at violent political offenders and what brought them to the table and, and what their recidivism looked like was kind of a natural evolution of my, my academic interest. So what I do specialize in now, or at least one of the projects that I focus on, is looking at recidivism rates amongst a violent political community or an extremist community or a terrorist community, whichever um, label you would like to apply. And um, currently, we don't know anything about violent, incarcerated political communities. We don't know anything about their recidivism rates. There currently are no studies or databases that, to the best of my knowledge, that exists in the Western world that will give us some direction as to what recidivism looks like amongst this unique community of offenders. There's, there's a very logical reason why we don't have that information accessible to us. And that's simply because until 9-11 happened in the United States, the Western world really didn't have strong legislative responses to violent extremism. There wasn't this this kind of united national or federal or even international 
um, set of laws and rules and regulations that even defined what terrorism was and then didn't provide a unified punitive response to terrorism. When 9-11 happened, the United States and its Western allies took that as as a, a point of motivation to then legislate and to really kind of gather the wagons and prepare strong terrorist-oriented legislative measures. And so that's where we get things like um, the USA Patriot Act and the Homeland Security Act. So it really wasn't until... 2001, 2002, that the United States and other Western nations, but I'll focus more on the United States, really started to pursue terrorists in earnest and use legislative measures in order to accomplish those goals. So there was this really dramatic influx of individuals who were arrested and convicted of terrorism-related offenses following 9-11 and incarcerated for terrorist-related offenses. But when it comes to examining recidivism, you need a great deal of time for a large enough sample to gather um, for new policy measures, such as those that were implemented post 9-11, large enough sample to be arrested, to be convicted, to be sentenced, to be incarcerated, and then to be released, and then to spend enough time on the street to actually have the opportunity to recidivate. And I would think that there are quite a few eyes on whether they're doing okay or going back to their roots. Yeah, well, so so therein lies the problem, is that um, the average sentence for people in the United States who have been convicted of terrorism-related offenses is between 13 and 15 years. And since they were all scooped up uh, following 9-11, there's not that many that have hit the streets. I mean, there has been over the last couple of years. And legislators, because there's no information on recidivism, um, have started to become quite concerned about how to prepare for these individuals to hit the streets because they don't know if they're going to be like their apolitical counterparts that within the first nine years, 80 percent of them are going to recidivate. That's a pretty scary situation. And so legislators have, in the absence of information, have decided to err on the side of caution and assume the worst. So there's been a number of of really rather restrictive bills that have been presented on the state and federal level in expectation of this wave of political offenders hitting the streets again and potentially reoffending. For example, um, there's something called the Tracer Act, which is essentially a political version of, and when I say political, I mean terrorist-oriented version, um, a, a sex offender registry. And that would be entirely appropriate if we knew that recidivism rates were particularly high amongst a violent political sample. And if we knew that those recidivism rates were quite serious, so not just high, but they're engaging in very serious offenses. To, to clarify, anything counts uh, as, as recidivism from the smaller crimes, the apolitical crimes to going back to political crimes. Yes, absolutely. Anything counts. So it could be a minor parole violation, um, such as using a computer when you're not allowed to use a computer or, you know, going to uh, another state when you're not permitted to travel to another state. So, yes, it could be quite minor or it could be very severe. Okay. so then what are you you're, you're helping to track this at this point? I am. So so um, in the absence of any data, I set out to try and help 
fill this, this deficit of information. So I created the terrorist recidivism study. And so the terrorist recidivism study is a collection of everyone who has been convicted of terrorism-related offenses in the United States post 9-11. There's a little less than a thousand who have been processed by the criminal justice system in the United States and been found guilty of terrorism-related offenses. I, I pulled a number of those uh, individuals out. I removed anybody who, for example, was deported or anybody who passed away during the legal proceedings or while they were still in prison. So, you know, if, if they're no longer with us, then they're no longer capable of recidivating, for example. And that left me with about a little less than 600 cases of individuals who have been prosecuted and convicted of um, terrorism-related offenses between 9-11, uh, so September 11th, 2001, through to um, the end of 2018. So then compared to the up to 80% recidivism rates that we get for apolitical uh, convicted criminals in the U.S., what are we looking at for the political prisoners? So the results are, or what the TRS um, shows us is actually really quite fascinating, or at least in my opinion, it's fascinating. The 2018 data on the federal level indicates that approximately 44% of state prisoners are rearrested within their first year. And as I said, um, by year nine, it's it's 83% are rearrested. But for the TRS... Um, of the 581 individuals who were uh, included in the TRS who hadn't been deported or hadn't passed away or hadn't been sent to Guantanamo, for example, only nine recidivated. So that was, that was a recidivism rate of 1.6%. And what's really interesting is that more than half of those, so five of those nine, actually recidivated while they were still in prison. So if we're actually going to do an apples to apples comparison between apolitical recidivism rates and political recidivism rates, we really can only look at those who were released. So only four people over the span of 19 years reoffended post-release in, in the TRS, individuals who are convicted of terrorism-related offenses. That is crazy different levels. At, maybe it's beyond the the, the scope of the study, but do, do you have any insights into maybe why that is so low compared to apolitical? It's, uh, well, it's hard to say. So there's three possibilities that I see. The, the first is that perhaps this group, um, the, uh, the political offenders require a longer period of time to reoffend. I can counter that by saying that more than half of my sample was released um, and on the street for a minimum of 10 years before I stopped collecting data. So they had 10 years to recidivate, and we still only have single digits, like low single digit um, recidivism rates. So, so that's not likely the, the answer. The other is, is that they're simply uh, much better the second time around at hiding uh, their, their um, offending, their, their recidivism. They're, they're just much better. They've gotten smarter about how to fly under the radar while doing engaging in some kind of criminal activity. But that's also not highly likely because they are subjected to more onerous supervisory measures 
uh, probation and parole than are the apolitical offenders. So they're watched more closely than the apolitical offenders are. But the third one, which is the most parsimonious um, answer, which um, I'm always a fan of parsimony when it comes to, um, you know, empirical conclusions, is simply that they are not recidivism prone. It's, it's either it's inherent with um, their political orientations and their original motivations uh, for committing crimes in the first place and that those have run their course, or the criminal justice system is particularly effective at rehabilitating or de-radicalizing them, or, you know, they're just more likely to be deterred the second time around. Whatever the reason may be, um, you know, the most parsimonious uh, conclusion is simply they're just not going to recidivate. So you're also sort of, I mean, it's not directly related, but indirectly related. You're expanding the uh, political prisoners that you're looking at, right? You're, you're actually tracking now the ones that were at Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, yes, I am. Um, so, so if I were to accept my conclusion, or at least um, lean towards the idea that political offenders are just not likely to recidivate, one of the reasons is is that the the correctional system is doing what it's supposed to do, and it's deradicalizing and rehabilitating these individuals. Well, for every person that has been processed by the criminal justice model, meaning that they've they've been convicted of an offense in the United States and sent to prison. There's someone who has not been processed by the criminal justice model. They've been processed by the military model, which means they've never actually been convicted of terrorism-related offenses, but they have been deemed a threat to society, so they were sent to Guantanamo. I'm creating a second data set or a a subset of the the terrorism recidivism study where I'm replicating my my data search but I'm focusing on Guantanamo rather than the, the traditional prison system here in the United States or the, the traditional criminal justice system in the United States. So I'm collecting data on all of the individuals that were sent to Guantanamo, and then I'm, I'm following up with them as well to see if they recidivate. And if, if their recidivism levels are as low as the TRS recidivism levels, the ones that I've been quoting to you, um, that indicates that they are simply either they're deterred or, um, you know, their, their political motivation has run its course. And that applies to all political offenders, or at least political offenders who are specific to the United States. But on the other hand, if the Guantanamo sample recidivates at a higher rate than the prison sample or the more conventional criminal justice sample, then that indicates that we're doing something right in the criminal justice system. And it's not simply that political motivation has run its course and they're just not hardwired or softwired to be uh, recidivists, but instead that the criminal justice system is effective, whereas the military system or the military model is ineffective. And then that gives us some pretty clear policy implications which point strongly to the idea of when, when political offenders become violent or engage in terrorist-related activities, they should be processed by the criminal justice system because that seems to be effective at reducing recidivism. So last study that I wanted to just touch on real quick was I know you've been working in the Idaho prison system trying to improve recidivism here how does Idaho look compared to other states when it comes to recidivism? And then what are you trying specifically to help with? 
Yeah. So, so thank you for asking about that. Um, I, I will, I will preface this by saying that um, due to the pandemic, the work that I'm doing in the Idaho prisons, um, at least the research oriented work I'm doing in the Idaho prisons has been temporarily suspended. But just to give you a snapshot of where Idaho is at, Idaho has one of the lowest crime rates in the United States, but it also has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country. It's a really interesting situation that's set up in Idaho in the sense that about 35% of Idaho prison residents are due to drug possession. And that's because Idaho has some very strict drug laws compared to comparable states. So judges, for example, are required to sentence individuals to prison if they think the individuals are likely to commit another crime, such as more drug possession. So that means that our prisons are, well, to begin with, our prisons are over capacity. And on top of that, we have some fairly harsh sentencing laws for some uh, fairly low level type offenses. A lot of individuals end up in the prison system for a long period of time for relatively minor offenses, victimless offenses. And then they get sent back out onto the street. And although the Idaho Department of Corrections um, has has a fairly robust, standardized pre-release entry program that they filter the the residents of the prisons through before they're released onto the street. I mean, these these individuals, um, you know, they, they don't have a whole lot of resources available to them. So the deck is stacked against them. So we do actually see very high recidivism rates in Idaho. It was particularly high before 2014. Um, And in 2014, the lawmakers signed in a justice reinvestment bill where they really wanted to focus on reducing recidivism, reducing corrections costs, and increasing public safety. And with that comes a great emphasis on trying to help these guys land on their feet when they are released from prison. But we're still pretty high. We're now 16th in the country uh, for our recidivism rates. So just lastly, then, your program is providing them the tools they need so that when they get out, they can succeed. Yeah, essentially, I'm I'm working with the Idaho Department of Corrections. Um, We are a little stalled out because of the pandemic, but we're looking creatively at how to uh, revamp the pre-release program a bit to make it uh, more accessible more regionally uh, appropriate and more technologically uh, savvy, for lack of a better word, um, to better equip the the residents of the prison system to successfully reintegrate back into society. All right. Well, Omi, thank you so much for joining me. That was that was incredible. I I actually learned a ton today. <laughs> well, thank you, Lee. I really appreciate being part of the podcast. If you found the intricacies of Omi's recidivism research interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. In December, an eight-student team from the NASA Idaho Space Grant Consortium in the College of Engineering will be in Chile recording gravity waves produced by the complete solar eclipse. Gravity waves are atmospheric disturbances that can influence weather. The team practiced measuring waves all summer by launching weather balloons weekly. The University of Idaho has secured a National Institutes of Health grant for nearly $11 million to support the continued modeling for biomedical research at U of I's Institute for Modeling, Collaboration, and Innovation. A Meridian scientist and entrepreneur will work with Shelley and Mark McGuire in the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. 
They want to perfect a simple home test to help breastfeeding mothers avoid allergic reactions by their infants. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. You can visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory to get more information about Omi's research. Read our show notes and email me with comments. We'd love it if you would subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And please rate and review us too. We've loved hearing from our listeners and we really appreciate your support. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.